welcome to a new episode of the Better Teams podcast. I'm Vincent and I'm here to tell you that this episode is a little bit special. It is not your usual interview of inspiring individuals developing great teams. Today, we wanted to offer you a talk that Max recently gave about technical depth. Although it is not the sexiest topic at first sight, technical depth is a problem that almost every company now faces around the world and it can be a massive pain. In this talk, Max will explain everything there is to know about technical depth. He will talk about product development, monkeys, and even Jurassic Park. But most importantly, he will tell you how you can turn technical depth into great opportunities for your business and ways to build better teams. This talk was given for students from Hack Your Future. Hack Your Future was founded in 2015 in Amsterdam with the aim to enable refugees to build digital skills for a career in web development, facilitating their integration and addressing the shortage of qualified workforce in the IT sector. If you don't know them, you can check their website, hackyourfuture.net. This is an amazing team and they do a great job. Thank you for listening to the Better Teams podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Have a good listening. Today, I want to tell you about technical debt, like I said, because it's very important. And I've seen that a lot, you know, by being on the other side of the table as a hiring manager, for instance, you know. I like to see uh, how students and candidates look at that aspect. It's very, very common that nobody knows what it is before they arrive in a company, but almost on day one, they're going to suffer from it. So I think I'm giving you an edge by telling you a bit about it before everybody else, because any university, any school of coding or anything, they don't talk about that. Because, you know, when you hear about it, you don't want to be a developer anymore. So that's why. But I'll tell you and don't worry. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. So the first thing I, w- I would like to tell you is about, okay, product development. You know, here I'm not talking just about software development, but product development, because product can be much wider, okay? From what I understood here, you're studying um, mostly the web development aspect. But here I'm taking something a bit wider. So let's say a product, you have to understand it as a mix of discipline, okay? So for instance, hardware, mechanical, software, UX. So you can think of it like a robot, but you can take it also as something much simpler, like uh, any IoT device, for instance. You know, it has you know, electronic parts, it has software parts, you know, it has packaging, all these things, right? All of these are um, components of what the product is. So all of these aspects will have um, an impact on the technical depth. But of course, the software will, will be the one suffering the most. Okay? So I just would like to tell you, okay, like I said, it's a mix of discipline with different level of uh, perceived flexibility, okay, in those disciplines, right? So which, which of these would you say is the software? Which of these three animals is the software? Any idea? The cow, yeah, you think, yeah? Monkey, someone said monkey? <laughs> well, if you look at the flex, because I mean, I didn't choose those animals randomly, right? I mean, flexibility has to do with it, right? So. Now, the most flexible, you know, is the monkey here, the chimp, and it's a small one, uh, so that would be the software. That's the perceived flexibility, right? So because, you know, you can just write software, and you can go home and change the software, and, like in the movie, right? Everything works right away, you know? Uh, something which is a little bit less flexible is the electronics, because you have to buy new parts and stuff like that. You have to find the right parts to put on your circuit board. And then the one which is really difficult to change is the mechanical aspect, right? So moving parts, you know? So, that's, I would say, the, how the, the mix of discipline and the level of flexibility. Where is Sorry? Where is 
I was afraid someone would ask, but at the same time, I'm happy that you're doing it. Uh, no, I didn't put it on the scale because it can be at every level. Basically, it can be a UX. As, uh, UX can be uh, through software, or it can also be through uh, through physical parts. You know, that's why it's uh, UX is always mixed up in all those uh, all those components. That's what I mean. You know, so it could be an external button outside, for instance. You know, that's why I didn't put it on it. But thanks, thanks for following. Uh, nobody else saw it. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> so when you build a product. And there is a happy flow, right? And I will describe the happy flow. When everything is great, when the sun is uh, shining, uh, it starts with an idea, right? So here I'm assuming that uh, you are in a company, you have the right funding, you want to develop a new product, okay? So there's no slide about investors and stuff like that because I don't know anything about it anyway. It's just about you're inside a company, you want to build a new product. If this is, a, like I said, an IoT product or something really that you can feel, not just software, but a mix of discipline, and you have what we call the hardware and you have a bill of material. So what you want, uh, what are the components you're gonna have in this, in this product, right? So this is the very beginning because you're not gonna start by, by just writing software. You will first decide, okay, where is that software going to run, right? So when you do web development, of course, and that's much easier in that sense, you know it's gonna be running somewhere in the data center. Here I'm talking really about, uh, about a physical product. Then you go into schematics, so you design, okay, how is my electronic gonna look like, you know, so that's the logical aspect of it. Then you make your PCB, so printed circuit board, you know, what is, you know, you start printing those things, so basically the, the, brain, of your, uh, the brain of your product, you know, so to speak. Then you go into assembling that, then you are bringing up the board, so putting the first software into that, so you give life to your, uh, to your product. Then, you know, hardware interface testing, and then comes the software. So I know in your case, probably things would start only here, you know, because everything else here is taken care of by a data center somewhere. But it's still very important to know what goes behind the scene. Because when you get into these markets, you could find opportunities in many different companies. And I think uh, the um, companies like Barco, for instance, who are making, you know, big projectors. Okay, this one is not a Barco, but. Uh, you know, like big uh, LCD screens or like big LED screens that you have in stadiums and stuff like that, those are embedded software. And there's a lot of opportunities in that industry, you know, because it's also difficult to find, to find developer in that industry. So we look a lot at IT, we kind of have um, a bit of a tunnel vision in that, you know, that IT is just, you know, about um, writing software which runs on a data center somewhere, you know, or apps running on a phone. But uh, there is a big, big part of the industry which is also underserved, and I think it's interesting to understand that. You, know, you don't need to be an expert in electronics, but it's good to know that your software can run somewhere else. So then you go into application testing, and then you productize your thing, and then you make money, right? That's the happy flow, yeah? Takes time to make money, right? You need to spend a bit before. <laughs> That's why, although I have a lot of experience in this, you know, uh, after 15 years building products in that kind of industry, when I started my company, I chose not to do that <laughs> because I knew all the problems you could get, you know. So the thing with product development is that it, it's quite unpredictable, you know. If you take the happy flow that I explained just before, a lot of stuff can happen. So you can have sourcing issues. I mean, now look, look what's happening with China now. A lot of companies are actually on a standstill because they are missing a screw somewhere because it's being, pro uh, um, it's being manufactured in China and they can't get it because of the coronavirus. So sourcing issues can come right in the middle of that, right? You can say, okay, I cannot find the right components, so I cannot build the board the way I wanted to build it, right? You can have security issues, for instance, you know, on the, well, we have 
it's easy to, uh, to tamper with our device, and then uh, all of a sudden you get really uh, a real uh, IT security issue with your device. You can get hacked easily. Uh, you can have UX issues. You can have new requirements popping up. If you have uh, a product which is you know, sitting on a table and very demanding in terms of processing, you can even have thermal issues. Like the thing you know, is, is running hot. You know? So these things, you know, of course, when you're in web development, you don't realize these things because, you know, again, it's running somewhere in the DC. But when you, when you work on different type of products, you know, like an embedded product, like anything, like a laptop or uh, any kind of audio equipment, that thing can, for instance, start to, to, to run hot, you know. So you've got a problem. You've got to fix that, right? So typically what happens when you have all these kind of problems, which seem to be all over the value chain, right? You know, it's not just, uh, it's not just an application development problem, right? But when you get into, into these kind of issues, then the product manager is going to say, so the product manager is the person who is responsible, who owns that product, right? You know, who's going to represent you know, what the product should look like and how it's going to be sold to which market. So it's the interface between you and the, and the client. The product manager, I would say nine times out of 10, is going to say, yeah, well, we'll fix it with software. He's not going to try to find the right components. He's not going to try to find the right electronics. He's going to say, well, Probably later on in software, we can fix that. If there's a sourcing issue, they will put a new chip and say, OK, we don't need to change the whole architecture. We're just going to make a fix. You know? And that's where things start. You know? That's where the problems start. Because you, know, you can't fix everything with software. But still, that's the perceived, um, um, how do you call that? That's the impression you give. You know? Basically, everybody thinks that software is easy to fix. So we're going to fix it there. And that's where you start making shortcuts in your design. That's where you start to suffer. So yeah, why is that? Well, essentially, I think software is invisible. So people think, OK, it's invisible, so it's cheap. You know? It's no problem. You know? And you see it also in, in many companies. You know, uh, they will change the complete course of the product roadmap. And they will say, yeah, it's OK. You know? We have a bunch of software engineers. They're going to they're gonna deal with it. You know? It's going to be beautiful, no problem. And they can bring it tomorrow. Right? Uh, yeah, software looks free. When, when you have a board on the table, like electronics, you know, that looks expensive, right? That looks like you, that you spend money for it, right? You, you barter something for it. Software, you don't see it. So yeah, must be free, right? It's not a big deal. And uh, yeah, I think all Hollywood movies as well have something to do with that. I mean, it's, uh, it's terrible to say, but uh, a lot of the culture from, that people have, even in industry, from, uh, from what they perceive as being software, you know, is influenced by this kind of stuff. So of course here it's, uh, it's half a joke, eh? but uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's a pretty old movie. I mean, the old guy who, who owns the park, you know, he tells his grandchildren, I, I didn't spare any expenses, right? I built the most beautiful park, whatever you want. And then when you enter in the control center, there is one software developer, one guy for the whole park, you know? Turns out to be the bad guy in the end. But my point is that, it, you know, it doesn't shock anybody, you know, that to have the, an, an entire park running with one guy behind that, behind the scene. So that's that's what I mean by the Hollywood movies. But it's often like this: you look at any kind of series, you know, there is one guy hacking into a computer, you know, maybe pressing two keyboards at the same time and drinking coffee. But this this contributes to that. We always assume, yeah, this guy is smart or this lady is smart; she can fix that, you know. And uh, yeah, doesn't doesn't work like that. And of course, in certain companies, you have this kind of guys here. It's a very long description. The super introvert expert fixer who can take care of any request and never says no while being a super sarcastic person who hates documenting what he does. In every company I've worked, there was at least one person like that. You know? And I have 1,000 pictures in my head of who that person was. 
I mean, it, this is very true. I mean, it's, and the problem with this kind of person, you know, is that they are super motivated, you know, but when the product manager comes to them and says, can you fix it? You will say, yes, I can. But that's not the point. It's not the point whether you can, whether you're capable of doing it. Should you do it? How much time is it going to take? What will be the impact on the rest of the product? But that's never the question which is being asked. You ask a software engineer or any engineer that is, can you do it? They will always say, yes, I can. <laughs> because it's more about ego than, uh, than skills. So all of these things you know, really contribute to that. And now the, now the product manager, they have a new, when they get this kind of resistance, when you tell them, okay, I can't do it because X, Y, Z, then they will throw like the ultimate, um, how do you call that, the ultimate argument at you, which is, yeah, you know, wait, you know, we are agile, right? We can fix everything, we can change everything, you know, because that's the whole point of being agile. Well, usually when I hear that, that's a bit of my, uh, my reaction, no, being agile is not that. It's not about that. It's not about changing course all the time. It's, uh, it's about you know, having this kind of interval of time where you can hear, to your you can hear from your customer and test whether your assumptions were right. You know? But it's not about changing course all the time. So don't let any product manager or product owner or whatever person with a product in the name tell you, OK, you can do it because you're agile. Okay? First thing you do when you enter those companies, you tell them that. All right, so then what happened to flexibility when you, yeah, when you start uh, messing with the software to fix all kind of issues? Well, then the scale shifts, basically. Huh? You know, your electronics is still fairly flexible, your mechanical as well, but then your software becomes this, right? So you don't have a chimp running everywhere, you know, super flexible, you get that big thing, and that big thing is called technical depth, because you've made all kind of shortcuts, and then eventually you're going to have to pay for that, you know? And that's why we call that a debt, because that's really what it is. You are building up a huge, a huge stack of things that you should have done, you know, that you didn't do, which is why actually things which are fairly simple will become fairly complicated because of that. And that I will explain a little bit here. So let's talk about technical debt, because that's why we're here. So the definition in Wikipedia, so I guess this one was approved by Wikipedia. Uh, I hear they don't approve everything. So technical debt is a concept in software development that reflects the implied cost of additional rework we work caused by choosing an easy solution now instead of using a better approach that would take longer. So basically that's, uh, okay, you make shortcuts to please someone or maybe even please yourself because, you know, that day you don't feel like doing a proper job, so, you know, you take shortcuts. And then, of course, you're going to pay it, like, you know, times uh, 10,000 later on because everything becomes more difficult. Your software is less flexible. So let's take uh, an example in, uh, okay, this one is more suited to your background, so let's say uh, to web development, or let's say, let's imagine that, okay, th these are the axes, but of course, uh, you know, it's not uh, mathematically based, huh? okay? So if you're really into math, you know, don't blame me, you know, it's uh, not on scale or anything, but I'm trying to, to pass an idea here. So, yeah, a product manager walks into a room, so a room filled with developers, right? They say, guys, I need to have a new UI button, that's a new feature that we need to have, so, Let's say adds that feature into the sprint, you know, so the two-week sprint. If you're using Scrum, you know, two or three weeks, it doesn't matter. Um, and it's okay. Well, the team is like, okay, new feature, yeah, no problem. We're going to develop that thing. Okay, that's adding this much value and uh, for this much effort. So that's great. And then you know, that same product manager or maybe his boss or your boss, you know, comes in and say, hey. Um, we got that feedback from customers. They don't really like that small thing there, you know, whatever that, I don't know, that pop-up window, I don't know what, but can you take it out? Can you take it out? You know, it's not in the sprint, but can, can you take it out? Because, you know, it's, uh, it gives a bad feeling to the, so please, please do it. We put it in production right away, you know, so 
like just something very quick, you know, because software is free, right? So you can do it quickly, right? So I call that a dirty hack because usually it's so small, you know, that you think it yeah, doesn't matter, right? So you just put it in. You say yes, you know, you bring it in. You know. So okay, nothing happens, right? Because it's invisible. Yeah? Everything is invisible in software. And then, you know, on the next sprint, um, you have to implement, implement new UI button. You know, once again, okay, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a normal feature. I mean, it's a normal request, I would say. So uh, add a button, right? So now, you know, you're adding the same kind of value as with the first button, you know, with the same kind of effort. But hey, somehow, you know, you also create some you know, negative value there. You know, that's strange, you know, because you implement the same kind of button as before, right? So it should be the same thing, right? But somehow, you know, you're also spending more time on it because on top of implementing that new UI button, you also have to maintain whatever hack you made in between, you know? Because there is dependencies, you know, in a software, in, uh, especially as an architecture gets older, you know, and there's been a lot of hack in between and a lot of shortcuts and connections were created. So somehow, yeah, to develop that same button, it just takes more time because, well, because something happened in between. So, okay, well, it's not very big, so, the product manager doesn't see that, you know, he will just think, okay, well, they just wasted time on stuff, they took more coffee break or whatever, you know, but he's not going to pay attention too much. It's going to come back because, of course, you said yes the first time, so, of course, he will come back and ask you again. And uh, he will ask you to make another dirty hack about something else, you know, like we got some feedback about XYZ or maybe security has to be hidden on one of the things, so please do that, you know. You don't think much of it and you don't have time because it's not officially in the sprint, so you have to do it quick, right? And you have to put it in production very quickly. So, okay, the normal development flow continues and it asks you to make again a new UI button. Okay, no problem. But now uh, it's taking even more time, you know? To get to the same value, it takes more time and you create a lot of negative value in that. So why is that? Because you have to maintain the hack number one and number two because you realize that those things are actually colliding with whatever things you've been developing in a normal path. And then, okay, new UI button, same story. And the thing is, even if you don't put new hacks in it, it keeps growing every time you want to add a new feature because there is dependency now in your software. So everything becomes more complex. So something which in the beginning, you know, would add value right away, you know, and would take this much time, now can end up taking twice the time. And the product managers or the manager will never understand that. They will say, well, what's going on, guys? I mean, this is simple. I'm just asking you to to add a new button. I mean, you, you've done it before, right? Why is that? Well, this is why. And this is very insidious because it's behind, you know, it's really behind the scene, you know, you don't see that. And uh, I would say that the main issue with that is that it can't really be avoided. I mean, I, I could tell you, okay, just say no. You know, you just arrive, you say no to everything, you know. But the thing is, before you, there are some people already, so there is already some legacy waiting for you when you arrive in the company, you know. It's very rare that you're gonna end up working in a completely new product, which is like a blank shit, you know, that's not going to happen. At least if you join a startup, maybe this could happen. But what you will see if you join a startup is that, you know, they're still looking for their first customer, right? So the development teams, if they have a bit of funding and they have assembled the development team to work on a new product, they're going to be working on that new thing. And somewhere, you know, one of their colleagues was kind of a business developer will present your prototype to a customer and say, oh, this is what we have been building, you know? So that's also what the Lean Startup is telling you, right? You know, like show it, you know, show your stuff. Well, if the customer likes it and he wants it now, chances are the business developer will say, yeah, yeah, of course you can have it, you know? And then two weeks later, you have to package that prototype into an actual product. 
And that's also where you start your technical depth. So what I mean by it, it can't be avoided, only minimized that you need to have some kind of best practice in companies and in development, uh, development teams, but it's very, very difficult. I mean, even over time, imagine you've had a, a very perfect process the whole time. You had a strong technical leadership in the team. The CTO has been regarding that and you have a beautiful product, which is easy to, uh, to enhance and add new features. So that's great. Tomorrow you get acquired by another company. So they come, they do due diligence of, uh, you know, your, uh, your product and everything is great. Then, yeah, they acquire the company and then they say, well, we have a similar platform, right? So we want to integrate both. And that's what happened, you know. So it's very, very difficult for, uh, to find a company that you join that has zero technical depth. It's just almost impossible. So I'm not saying this story to, uh, to freak you out and tell you, okay, uh, you should uh, find another path, you know. No, it's, uh, it's a beautiful job, so... <laughs> stay at it, but it's, um, I think for people who join a company, you know, so like new hires, you know, developers, I think there's an opportunity with that, you know, not just to fix it for them, you know, but um, I think the first thing you need to be careful when you arrive there, if you want to make this an opportunity, is not judge, you know, because maybe that sounds strange that I say that, but it's a very, very common thing, you know, I mean, in my different jobs, you know, I've been, uh, I've been hiring a lot of software developers. At some point in time, I had a team of about 80 people, so fairly big, uh, fairly big organization. And it's very common when a developer joins, you know, and he looks at the code, you know, we tell him the first week, you know, as part of the onboarding, have a look into the code, right, you know, uh, of the platform or the product or whatever. And they look at it and they're like, you know, what the? <laughs> There's a lot of dirty stuff in there. They're like, Who's the idiot who, who wrote that code? You know? I mean, that, that's the first reflex, you know? Some people keep that in their heads, some people just say it out loud. Usually that doesn't last very long, but... But the point is that, you know, when you, you went to school, you know, you've learned the right ways, you know, like you use design pattern and stuff like that, and everything is great, and then you arrive in a company and you see that, and it's hard not to judge, you know? You're like, how could they write something like that? You know, like, doesn't make sense. Well, that's because of, you know, a legacy, you know. A legacy software has had a lot of technical depth. Some of those platforms have been running for 15 years, you know. I mean, or more. Actually, I say 15, but it could be even more. So the first thing I advise new hire is not to judge, you know, because that's, uh, that actually very, very quickly escalates because people get offended because many of the people who have built that platform are still working in a company. Uh, that's, the, that's this very platform who's paying the bills, who's paying for the salaries of people. So uh, the first thing, you know, if you want to make that an opportunity for you to join a company, don't judge that part, you know. It's very, very, very important. And um, so that's the, that's the very first advice. But I mean, next to that, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunities for you. Because, you know, in this market, what I've seen a lot with new hires and new developers, I've seen a lot of, uh, I was telling Manon about that a bit earlier, I've seen a lot of entitlement, you know? I mean, it's, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit sad to say, but people come in, you know, they know they have opportunities, you know? So they will very, very quickly judge what they see, you know? So there is really a, a market for people who, who care about the job, you know, who are really driven by doing a good job, you know, and integrating a company, integrating a team. So that's really a way to, uh, to, set, to set a difference from the crowd, I would say. But um, the first thing I see as an opportunity is, to me, legacy software is a bit of like a time travel machine, right? You know, you just arrive, you don't know anything about the product, right? So spending time to, you know, looking into the code, you know, and having the conversations with people who did it in the beginning, you know, who either started the company or started that very product, I mean, you create a real connection with those people, you can understand how the product was built. So 
you know, when, when, uh, when your new manager, you know, the person who hired you, puts you on a project, you know, don't get, you know, offended if you end up in a, what they call a maintenance team or a team working on legacy stuff. This is really a great opportunity. And many people are saying, no, I don't want to. I, I'd rather work on a new product. This new technology, you know, is a lot more sexy. You know, this is old stuff. I don't want to touch it. I mean, I would really advise you to refrain from that because you can really make a difference by showing interest, by showing genuine, genuine interest for the product because the product is the history of the company as well. And you will learn a lot of stuff because the code is the blueprint, right, of the product. So, and you will also understand some of the decisions which were made, you know. And, and if something doesn't make sense to you, you can say, hey, guys, I mean, why did you do it like this? In many cases, there's still one architect who's still around or something like that. You can ask that question. Because when you will arrive in a company, you will never find a design document. Eh? I mean, <laughs> it's really like uh, in school, you know, we are told about, okay, you know, a design document, requirement document. You'll never find those things. If you find them, they are, out of, they are completely outdated. You know? <laughs> so it's... Um, Essentially, the code is your blueprint, and that's really, um, I think it's easier to join a team if you come there and say, I'm interested in what you did, you know, and not just saying, okay, I looked at your code and it really looks like shit. can you explain to me why? No, that's not going to help you. So it's reassuring genuine interest for that. Also will help you to avoid reproducing the same mistakes because in time you're going to run into a new part of the product, you know, you might become responsible of a new part of the product in the future, or you want to know what they did, you know, and how to avoid that. And maybe those people will tell you, oh, I should have done that that way. I should have said no to something like this. Or they put pressure on me because of that, and I didn't know how to find the words to explain to them. So this is really an opportunity to understand the product better. Product being, it can be a platform, can be anything. So yeah, it's an opportunity to stand out from the crowd. You show real interest, you know. You're not just one of those guys, you know, who came in and say, well, I had a choice between 20 jobs. I took that one, and now you give me that software. Well, there are people like that. Huh? It's terrible. Huh? <laughs> it is happening. So stand out from the crowd you know, and build, re build a relationship with the, with the founding team, with the people who started this whole thing. And like that, you become a discussion partner much faster. Because if you join a company and you work only on a new product, this core team of people who've been around for a while, you know, the architects, the tech leads, they know about the old platform. You know, because they had to, to deal with it, or they had to even build it themselves. So if right away you choose to go and work, choose, sometimes you don't have a choice, but let's say you can influence that and you choose to work on the new parts, you know, and you don't know the old parts, you will never be part of those discussions. You know, you'll never have this reference frame, you know, that those people have. So don't run away from that because that can really help you grow much faster in the company, you know. You show that you understand it, you show that you understand the problems, you show that you understand the decision they made, and they will trust you much faster to become a tech lead in the future. At least that's what I would do. That's the first thing I check when I, do, uh, when I hire someone in interviews and during the onboarding phase. I look at the interest they have for the old platform. If someone tells me, okay, that's great, but I don't know who's the idiot who wrote it. I mean, no one is that direct. I mean, okay, Netherlands maybe, but in, in Belgium a bit less. But uh, people will show you that they kind of resent that part of the, the product, you know, because they're not interested. And that to me is really is a sign of, uh, you know, of commitment, of engagement, of, uh, of grit. Eh? I don't know. I don't know what you want to call it. So I really look at people who are not afraid to put their hands into that. And I know I'm not the only one. You know, that's, uh, that's for sure. Um, yeah, and that way you can really propose improvement much faster because you understand what was done before. You know? If you only know the new part, you will say, yeah, I think we should do it like this. And someone will throw at you, yeah, but we, we've tried that. We've tried that two years ago. And of course, you were not there, but they don't care. We tried that. 
But like this, you know, when you're aware of what things, ha what things were done and why they were done in such a way, people will start listening to you. You will grow faster in the company and also as a, as a professional. So very important. So basically, it's a, it's a short presentation, but my point is that, you know, <laughs> on your first day of, in the office, you know, you have to hug that gorilla, right? This, this big, you know, inflexible part of the product, you know, you have to go there and just embrace it right away because in any case, it will fall on you at some point, you know? And it's better if it's your initiative. And you will see that the people working in that company, whether it's a hiring manager or the team, they will appreciate you much faster for that. They will see, okay, that person is not afraid of, of digging into that, you know? We know it's a mess. They, sometimes they feel, they feel a bit ashamed of that, you know? Although they shouldn't, because they are the reason why the company is still running, for instance. But if I had a chance to talk to future candidates, which is the case today, you know? I always told myself I would tell them that, you know? Don't show up, you know, uh, saying that you, that you know it all. It's great. You have a great education. You know, you've learned, like, state-of-art stuff, you know. Now you know how to look further. You know how to educate yourself further. That's fantastic. But don't spit on those things because this is really, like, an opportunity to understand how people did it. So, yeah, find the gorilla and, you know, hug it on the first day. Thank you. That's, uh, that was my presentation.